You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Only casualties sustained and only campaigns in double speed. There's no more battles, only young conflicts. High tech weapons and electronic tricks. War just the same as a video game, you can double speak. Truth is, disguise lies, you could try to minimize Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 24th day of January, 2010. I'd like to welcome all the listeners to the podcast and encourage them all, as always, to check out the websites CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and ClimateGate.tv. And, of course, I'd also like people to support those websites that help support and broadcast this podcast, including ZeroPointRadio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, Archive.org, and RadioForAll.net. I certainly hope that people took to heart my advice last week to subscribe to the Interviews tab on the Corbett Report homepage, and if they had done so, they would have realized that this week we had not one, not two, not three, not four, but five extremely interesting conversations with a number of guests. So, once again, I would like to suggest that people subscribe to the Interviews feed by going to the Subscribe tab on the CorbettReport.com homepage so that you can have all of our latest conversations delivered directly to your MP3 player. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from foxnews.com, January 22nd, 2010. Tax and spend, UN's RX for New World Medical Order. A member of a World Health Organization panel of experts that is pondering new global taxes on emails, alcohol, tobacco, airline travel, and consumer bank transactions has charged that she was given only selective information at group meetings that deliberations were rushed, and that the group was manipulated by the international pharmaceuticals industry. All of her charges were strongly denied by the head of the WHO's expert working group on research and development financing, a 25-member panel of medical experts, academics, and healthcare bureaucrats, which is due to present a 98-page report in Geneva on Monday after 14 months of deliberations on new and innovative sources of funding to reshape the global medical industry. A copy of the executive summary of the report was obtained by Fox News on January 15th, the same day, as it happens, that the EWG's dissident member first aired her charges in a letter to members of WHO's 34-member supervisory executive board. 
The executive summary first revealed the possibility of a multi-billion dollar indirect consumer tax as one means of financing an epic shift of drug-making research, development, and manufacturing capabilities to the developing world that is the central aim of WHO's fundraising strategy. Today's second real news story comes to us from rawstory.com, also the 22nd of January 2010. EFF. Court ruling means surveillance of Americans immune from review. A U.S. District Court judge in San Francisco has dismissed a lawsuit brought against the U.S. government by individuals who say their rights were infringed by the National Security Agency's warrantless wiretapping program. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, a privacy watchdog that participated in the lawsuit, described the judge's ruling as declaring that mass surveillance of Americans is immune from judicial review. Nine plaintiffs, five customers of telecom companies from California and four others from Brooklyn, had sued the NSA, arguing that their rights had been infringed by the wiretapping program, which potentially could have spied on anyone in the United States. This ruling robs innocent telecom customers of their privacy rights without due process of law, EFF legal director Cindy Cohn said in a statement. Setting limits on executive power is one of the most important elements of America's system of government, and judicial oversight is a critical part of that. Today's next real news story comes from theregister.co.uk from the 20th of January 2010. FBI faked terror alerts to get phone records. The FBI fabricated terrorism emergencies to obtain thousands of phone records between 2002 and 2006, it's been revealed. The Bureau created exigent letters to get around rules that had already been significantly loosened by the Patriot Act. The letters were used to obtain some 2,000 phone records, the Washington Post reports. Washington Post and New York Times journalists were among the targets. The internal concerns were confirmed in emails that are part of an investigation by the Justice Department's Inspector General, which is due to report this month. As well as fabricating emergencies, FBI counter-terror investigators obtained phone records by simply leaning on operators, getting approval after the fact with blanket authorizations. Today's next real news story comes to us from the Industry Standard by way of blacklistednews.com, the 16th of January, 2010. Italy to require anyone who uploads video to the internet to obtain government authorization. New rules to be introduced by government decree will require people who upload videos onto the internet to obtain authorization from the communications ministry similar to that required by television broadcasters drastically reducing freedom to communicate over the web, opposition lawmakers have warned. The decree is ostensibly an enactment of a European Union directive on product placement and is due to go into effect at the end of January after being subjected to a non-binding appraisal by Parliament. On Thursday, opposition lawmakers held a press conference in Parliament to denounce the new rules, which require government authorization for the uploading of videos give individuals who claim to have been defamed a right of reply, and prevent the replay of copyright material as a threat to freedom of expression. Today's final real news story comes to us from The Telegraph, also via blacklistednews.com, 13th of January, 2010.
Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg says privacy is no longer a social norm. Talking in San Francisco over the weekend at the Crunchy Awards, which recognize technological achievements, the 25-year-old web entrepreneur said, People have really gotten comfortable not only sharing more information and different kinds, but more openly and with more people. He went on to say that privacy was no longer a social norm and had just evolved over time. Mr. Zuckerberg's statements about privacy change chime in with the latest changes made to Facebook's own privacy settings, which caused controversy and has affected the network's 350 million user base. From last December onwards, all Facebook users' status updates are made publicly available unless the user actively opts to change the settings and makes it private. Users were alerted to changes via a notification posted in the bottom right-hand corner of the site. The site's users were also given the opportunity to change settings on things like photographs and videos they upload to the site. However, the changes sparked criticism from internet users' rights groups, who said the move was a way for Facebook to facilitate more people making more personal information publicly available without realizing it. Mr. Zuckerberg defended the changes made by Facebook to its privacy set settings, saying it was in line with the new social norms. A lot of companies would be trapped by the conventions and their legacies of what they've built, he said. Doing a privacy change for 350 million users is not the kind of thing that a lot of companies would do. But we viewed that as a really important thing, to always keep a beginner's mind. And what would we do if we were starting the company now, and we decided that these would be the social norms now, and we just went for it, he explained. How's the dictionary getting on? said Winston, raising his voice to overcome the noise. Slowly, said Syme, I'm on the adjectives. It's fascinating. He had brightened up immediately at the mention of Newspeak. He pushed his pannikin aside, took up his hunk of bread in one delicate hand and his cheese in the other, and leaned across the table so as to be able to speak without shouting. The eleventh edition is the definitive edition, he said. We're getting the language into its final shape, the shape it's going to have when nobody speaks anything else. When we've finished with it, people like you will have to learn it all over again. You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words, but not a bit of it. We're destroying words. Scores of them, hundreds of them, every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. The eleventh edition won't contain a single word that will become obsolete before the year 2050. He bit hungrily into his bread and swallowed a couple of mouthfuls, then continued speaking with a sort of pedant's passion. His thin, dark face had become animated, his eyes had lost their mocking expression and grown almost dreamy. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage is in the verbs and adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be got rid of as well. It isn't only the synonyms, there are also the antonyms. After all, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of some other words? A word contains its opposite in itself. Take good, for instance. If you have a word like good, what need is there for a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well. Better, because it's an exact opposite, which the other is not. Or, again, if you want a stronger version of good, what sense is there in having a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent and splendid and all the rest of them? Plus good covers the meaning, 
or double plus good if you want something stronger still. Of course, we use those forms already, but in the final version of Newspeak there'll be nothing else. In the end, the whole notion of goodness and badness will be covered by only six words. In reality, only one word. Don't you see the beauty of that, Winston? It was B.B.'s idea originally, of course, he added as an afterthought. A sort of vapid eagerness flitted across Winston's face at the mention of Big Brother. Nevertheless, Syme immediately detected a certain lack of enthusiasm. You haven't a real appreciation of Newspeak, Winston, he said almost sadly. Even when you write it, you're still thinking in old speak. I've read some of those pieces that you write in the Times occasionally. They're good enough, but they're translations. In your heart, you'd prefer to stick to old speak with all its vagueness and its useless shades of meaning. You don't grasp the beauty of the destruction of words. Do you know that Newspeak is the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year? Winston did know that, of course. He smiled sympathetically, he hoped, not trusting himself to speak. Syme bit off another fragment of the dark-colored bread, chewed it briefly, and went on. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that will ever be needed will be expressed by exactly one word, with its meaning rigidly defined and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. Already in the eleventh edition we're not far from that point. But the process will still be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year fewer and fewer words, and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, reality control. But in the end there won't be any need even for that. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is Ingsoc, and Ingsoc is Newspeak, he added with a sort of mystical satisfaction. Has it ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, at the very latest, not a single human being will be alive who could understand such a conversation as we are having now? Welcome, my friends, welcome to episode 114 of the Corbett Report. Newspeak is double plus ungood. What we have just been listening to is an excerpt from the seminal work of political and social critique and a vision of a nightmare future tyrannical society, George Orwell's 1984. Many of the terms that Orwell used in 1984 to describe that nightmare future society have now passed into the lexicon and are used commonly in everyday English. From Big Brother, to the Memory Hole, to the Ministry of Truth, to the Thought Police, Many of those concepts are now very common to us, and we understand that they refer to various aspects of a totalitarian panoptic state. One of the terms that has not quite entered into the vernacular, however, is newspeak, what we just heard talked about in that previous clip. Now, there is a term doublespeak, which is sometimes used in political parlance, and seems to be a conflation of two of the terms from 1984, newspeak and doublethink, but doublespeak does not in fact occur anywhere in the book. Doublespeak is something like language used to hide the actual meaning of what is being expressed, and we see examples of that, for example, in Obama's recent Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, in which he is accepting a prize for being a peace lover while extolling the virtues of war. But Newspeak is something slightly different. Newspeak specifically refers to a language 
that was invented in the 1984 mythical universe and is aptly defined by George Orwell in an appendix to 1984, which was included with the book. This appendix is written as a history of the Newspeak language, written from some imaginary future perspective, and it includes the following definition of the term Newspeak. Quote, The purpose of Newspeak was not only to provide a medium of expression for the worldview and mental habits proper to the devotees of Ingsoc, but to make all other modes of thought impossible. It was intended that when Newspeak had been adopted once and for all and Oldspeak forgotten, a heretical thought, that is, a thought diverging from the principles of Ingsoc, should be literally unthinkable, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. Its vocabulary was so constructed as to give exact and often very subtle expression to every meaning that a party member could properly wish to express, while excluding all other meanings and also the possibility of arriving at them by indirect methods. This was done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words and by stripping such words as remained of unorthodox meanings, and so far as possible of all secondary meanings whatsoever. To give a single example, the word free still existed in Newspeak, but it could only be used in such statements as this dog is free from lice, or this field is free from weeds. It could not be used in the old sense of politically free or intellectually free, since political and intellectual freedom no longer existed even as concepts, and were therefore of necessity nameless. Quite apart from the suppression of definitely heretical words, reduction of vocabulary was regarded as an end in itself, and no word that could be dispensed with was allowed to survive. Newspeak was designed not to extend, but to diminish the range of thought, and this purpose was indirectly assisted by cutting the choice of words down to a minimum. End quote. But, of course, George Orwell was merely a novelist, and 1984 was merely a work of fiction. This, however, is not. From the Daily Telegraph via BlacklistedNews.com, 11th of January 2010, Teenagers only use 800 different words a day. Quote, Although, according to recent surveys, they know an average of 40,000 words, they tend to favor a teen-speak used in text messages on social networking sites like Facebook and MySpace and in internet chat rooms like MSN. One poll, commissioned by Tesco, revealed that while children had the vocabulary to be articulate, the top 20 words they used, including the Vicky Pollard lexicon of yeah, no, and but, accounted for about a third of all the words they used. According to Jean Gross, England's first communication champion for children who started in the Post this month, the lack of range will impact negatively on their chances of getting a job. End quote. Now, personally, I'm not sure what's the most disturbing part of that article, the fact that young people's vocabulary has been so pruned that they now only use about 800 words a day, or the fact that the communication champion for children of the UK thinks that this is a bad thing 
only insofar as it will prevent them from being employed. One wonders if there are to be jobs in the future that would require no verbal communication other than those top 20 words, whether then Gene Gross would be satisfied with our current state of affairs. Of course, it would be easy for me to illustrate this 800-word-a-day teen-speak vernacular by dredging up some clip from YouTube of some particularly inarticulate teenage ramblings, but I think that would miss the point entirely. The youth of today are not so inarticulate because they are stupid. It is a perfectly predictable result of a combination of biochemical attack from the fluorides and Ritalin and Zoloft and all of the other chemicals and pharmaceuticals which these children are subjected to from birth, attacking their neurological processes and their development, and the predictive programming which they are subjected to from all forms of media on a daily basis, and the education system itself, which seems to make a concerted effort not to teach children to be expressive and communicative in their own mother language. Making fun of the youth of today for their inability to be articulate would be akin to making fun of an Olympic athlete for having their legs cut off before a race and then not being able to complete that race. The point is not to make fun of the victim, but to expose how and why that victim has been made a victim, and then to suggest something that can be done about it. But in order to make the point that indeed our vocabulary is shrinking, and we are becoming a nation, a society of people who are unable to articulate deep thoughts, perhaps we should take a cue from those people whom we are supposed to hold in the highest regard including that person who holds the highest office in the land, the President of the United States of America. This is what political discourse sounded like 150 years ago. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, 
that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And this is what it sounds like today. Uh, I don't think we've ever done this before. This is an excellent segment, and you folks, uh, thank your lucky stars you're here tonight. It's time for the Barack Obama uh count. Let me, uh, now, let me repeat that. <laughs> Barack Obama uh count. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. Here we go. All those things uh, override uh, a guilt by association. Uh, 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 some of these issues. Uh, to talk more fully about, uh, 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 with full documentation, that uh, there's nothing I think there's no doubt that uh, 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 it has been in the past. Uh, uh, yeah, he makes a good point. Third, this bill meets our commitment to America's armed forces by preparing them to meet the threats of tomorrow. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. Everybody knows that it makes no sense that you send a kid to the emergency room for a treatable illness like asthma. They end up taking up a hospital bed. It costs when if you they just gave you gave them treatment early, and they got some treatment and a, a breathalyzer or an inhalator, not a breathalyzer. <laughs> I haven't had much sleep in the last forty-eight hours, so he can't take the high horse and then claim the low road. I just want to say that the only thing less popular than putting money into banks. Is putting money into the auto industry. Uh, so 18 percent are in favor. Uh, 76 percent against. It, it, it's not a high number. You're sitting here and you're you are laughing about some of these problems. Are people going to look at this and say, I mean, you're sitting there just making jokes about money? With <laughs> how do you deal uh, with? It? I mean, wh explain the the well, your mood and your laughter. Yeah, on. I mean, there's got to be a punch drunk. Now, perhaps there are those out there who are still wondering precisely why this is such a problem. Yes, maybe people are not quite as articulate or quite as learned as they may have been on average a couple of hundred years ago, but what does it really matter? We're still able to communicate, we're still able to understand each other for the most part. So, no harm, no foul. But if there are people out there who still don't understand the importance, the incredible central importance of language and rhetoric to the expression of complex political thought or detailed philosophical understanding, well then, perhaps we should get President Obama to explain it for us. Don't tell me words don't matter. I have a dream, just words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, just words. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, just words, just speeches. 
It's true that speeches don't solve all problems, but what is also true is if we cannot inspire the country to believe again, then it doesn't matter how many policies and plans we have, and that is why I'm running for President of the United States of America, and that's why we just won eight elections straight, because the American people want to believe and change again. Don't tell me words don't matter. The point is well taken that the mere words of people like the Founding Fathers or JFK or MLK do have the power to change the course of history. Rhetoric and the expression of ideas is absolutely central to our political and social life on this planet. And it would have been very amazing if Obama had articulated that instead of plagiarizing it from a speech made two years previously. But her dismissive point, and I hear it a lot from her staff, is that uh, all I have to offer is words. Just words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. At any rate, we still have to take a look at how these words can be used to shape society, not for the better, as the stirring words about liberty and peace may have done in times past, but for the worse. What is the political rhetoric or the changes in our language that are twisting and turning the political process in a direction that we don't want it to go? Well, one example of how the language is being manipulated was best described by George Bush. If you've retired, you don't have anything to worry about. It's the third time I've said that. I'll probably say it three more times, see? In my line of work, you've got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in, to kind of catapult the propaganda. And one example of that technique in action, it comes from the 2004 Republican Convention in New York. In the heart of this great city, we saw tragedy arrive on a quiet morning, September the 11th. September the 11th, September the 11th, September 11th, September 11th, September 11th, September 11th, September 11th, September 11th. 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 September 11th, September 11th, September 11th. September 11th, September 11th. September 11th, September 11th, September 11th, 2001. Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, Saddam, 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 Saddam Hussein. War and danger. Continuing danger. Hour of danger. Very, very dangerous world. A grave new threat. Horrific 
acts of atrocities, murderous regimes dedicating to killing us, tyranny and terror, slaughtered thousands. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons programs. The deadliest of weapons. Terrible weapons. Nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons. Poison gas. Torture chambers. Mass graves. Deadly technologies. Radical ideology of hate. Terror of threats. Terror. 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 War on terrorism. War against terrorism. Global war on terror. Global terrorism, 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 the evil terrorists, 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 in one sense, that's a particularly good example because now that we're a few years removed from that incredible and intense war on terror propaganda from the early part of this decade, we can see just how patently ridiculous and, in fact, really quite revolting such a display really was and is. But perhaps that does seem a bit dated now that we're here in 2010 and we have lots of other things to worry about such as... We all have a carbon footprint, which contributes to climate change. But most importantly, Bob has the average carbon footprint of the average Canadian. To find out more about climate change and how to reduce your CO2 footprint. How to reduce your carbon footprint. Under this scheme, everyone in the UK would be allocated an annual carbon allowance. What size is your carbon footprint? We all leave behind a carbon footprint. Next time you switch on the light, or get in the car. Remember the penguins and help make planet Earth smile. Yes, carbon footprint and reducing carbon emissions and the great carbon scare is yet another iteration of that simple maxim that if you repeat something often enough, people will believe it to be true. And so our very language itself is being steered in the direction of the great global warming hoax by incorporating terms like carbon footprint into our everyday speech and hammering it home to us by enforced repetition through all the media so that we hear it dozens if not hundreds of times a day. If you're subjected to such a psychological warfare technique for long enough, you will begin to parrot it yourself. It is natural human behavior. The people who have been studying the psychology of humans and how humans communicate have known this for a long time, and the process has been steered in this direction for a long time. So let's explore a little bit of the history of this psycholinguistic warfare technique and where it really came from. And in order to delve into that deep history, let's turn to a great historical researcher, Alan Watt. In the beginning was the Word. The Word didn't create anything. The Word, the word esoterically uh, created the big idea. The big idea was the abstract form, unformulated chaos. You see, but wisdom was behind it, so the serpent moved over the waters. This is the esoteric understanding, as it's always been pre-Christian, pre-Judaism, -Juda uh, pre-most of the religions you know, in fact. Uh, 
And so you have the unformed idea, but wisdom is behind it. It's the big idea as it's expressed in high Freemasonry, in the high esoteric circles. The word is to formulate it, to speak it into existence. You create a system, a world, a perception by speaking it into existence and through repetition thereafter. Using the tribal systems, if you get the ones at the tops of the tribes or the kings and the queens, that's why kings and queens were invented and given to the public as a showpiece. Whatever they say or do, the people down below emulate, whether it's what they say or the accent to use as in England, which is actually a corrupt form of English because the, the Germans brought it in with them, with George, and the, the modern-day Queen, or Elizabeth, Elizabethan, Queen's English is actually a corruption of English uh, because he couldn't speak English very well. Now it's the norm at the top. So the people down below emulate what they see at the top. It doesn't mean that what you're... And perception becomes reality for the public, but it's not the, the true reality. It's a show for the public. The word is spoken into existence. Now we see the, the communists, as I say, who, who wrote more about this technique because they've been heavily trained by the esoteric groups who'd already ruled the world for thousands and thousands of years. And they were taught some of these sciences at the top. And Lenin said, we shall win by slogans, the repetition of slogans. And the idea was to divide and conquer all the existing structures within society, within humanity, divide the generations from each other, uh, divide, not only separate the generations, but actually make each one think and, and interact only with their own as they grow up and then mature throughout their life. They wouldn't mix with either group below or above. Interesting how detailed it was. And this works to, to the present day. We don't look towards anyone younger for wisdom. We don't look to anyone older for wisdom. We sort of just float through a particular little uh, avenue we're given uh, and we're, we're, we're disassociated with everyone else around us. We also find the use of slogans, as I say, uh, don't trust anyone over 30. Then they kept dropping it and dropping it. And that was first put out by the Communist Party within the United States. It worked very well. We find the same slogans used to silence anyone with an with who is investigating the system as they see it at the time. And they're either called a Nazi or uh, an anti-Semite or a Zionist. And its slogans silence the person who's, who's inquiring, you see. And it can be very innocent, to the, the, the inquiry itself, but to silence you is to get a response, a guilt response in you, a conditioned, reflexed guilt response so that you shut down and, and you, don't, you don't even question yourself why you're shutting down. Uh, these are silencing techniques which were well understood, again, thousands of years ago. Now, as Mr. Watt points out there, the kings and queens are not really our rulers, but those who are put out like showpieces for us to emulate and aspire to. So if the president is the modern-day king in the mass psychology, then what does it mean that today's kings, today's presidents, are inarticulate, bumbling morons, at least when the teleprompter is turned off?
Our society is being shaped not only so that it is losing their vocabulary, but that people who actually retain vocabulary, who are articulate and who can express themselves, are derided by others for being unusual. So what is the antidote for this growing problem? Well, there's always the school of thought that, to use a slogan, if you can't beat them, join them. Well, now they got the votes to ban the Second Amendment. Look out. And I guess if I don't turn in my grandfather's deer rifle that he gave my father, that my father gave me, I'll be lynched as being against Hispanics. See, this is mental illness. They know the public's dumbed down, very simple-minded, can barely understand simple concepts, so it's just bad man. You don't want to turn your guns in? Bad man. You don't want to pay higher taxes? Bad man. You want to see Obama's birth certificate? Bad man. Bad man. It's what a three-year-old can understand. That is a bad man. I have a chihuahua. You can say, this is a bad person. That's a bad person. Bad man. And the chihuahua will start growling and get upset. The general public is about as smart as my chihuahua. We're now training the French bulldog that's six months old that bad person, bad person, and he'll, he'll start growling. And, you know, it's a joke because he's so cute and lovable and pathetically, you know, silly. Oh, God help me. And, and so more and more I realize, let me just say this to the listeners then, not our general listeners, but new listeners. David Rockefeller, bad man has written several memoirs and an op-ed for the New York Times saying Mao Zedong and communism is good. Why would a top banker be for communism? Because they make you live under a communist system, take all your wealth and give it to themselves offshore. David Rockefeller, bad man. Sonia Sotomayor, bad lady. Barack Obama, bad man. He read off teleprompter. Speech writers write lies. He actor. He read them to you. Sodium fluoride in tap water. Bad for you. Do you understand me? You are being distracted. Do you know what that word means? It means, have you seen the bullfight? The bullfighter uses red cape to distract bull. He then stab bull with sword when bull run at red cape. Sonia Sotomayor. Same story. Barack Obama, black professor, police story, red cape. The sword is the Federal Reserve. They stab us, bad man. New World Order, bad man. Government corrupt, bad man. Bad man. Government too big, bad man. Pentagon work for foreign banks. Corporate takeover. Do you understand corporate takeover? 
Now, although such a technique is no doubt humorous, and perhaps even effective at reaching some of the people out there who are not yet at that level, but do see that trend in society, I think we can be agreed this is probably not a way of trying to solve the fundamental problem of people being ruled by the slogans which they're subjected to. No, indeed, we need some sort of psychological defense, a barrier which will prevent the language from overtaking our psyche and steering us toward whatever way the financial oligarchs want us to go, whether that be carbon footprints or carbon rationing or killing ourselves in the name of the environment. But if there is any way to really prevent people from being swayed so easily by just words... It is to train the mind, once again, not only the language itself, but how to acquire language, how to use language, how to understand language. And to do that, we need to train the mind in the art of learning. It's at this point that I'd like to direct my listeners to a new podcast which has just been started by Richard Andrew Grove, a 9-11 whistleblower and the former host of the very popular but no longer with us podcast, 9-11 Synchronicity. His new podcast is a public service of tragedyandhope.com and is available free for download at peacerevolution.org. The Peace Revolution podcast promises to be an incredible journey as 9-11 Synchronicity was, through those pieces of the puzzle which we are often denied by the corporate, controlled, and foundation-funded media, but which are nonetheless vital in order for us to make informed choices in this world. And the beginning of the Peace Revolution podcast is a discussion of something called the trivium, which is the lost art of learning, which used to be taught as standard fare, but has since been removed and replaced by the Prussian system of education. And for more information on that, people are highly recommended to check out, of course, the works of John Taylor Gatto, who we've mentioned on this podcast before. But the early episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast are talking about the trivium, the understanding of how to learn, how to reason logically, how to acquire and use language and to use that as a defense against the type of sloganeering which is gradually replacing meaningful communication in our world. It's, of course, difficult to really encapsulate the entire argument and the entire flow of conversation at Peace Revolution in simply a short excerpt, so of course I would recommend my listeners go and check it out for themselves at peacerevolution.org. But in the meantime, let's listen to a clip from the most recent episode, episode two of the podcast, where some of the members of the team are discussing the trivium, logic, reasoning, and speech. And so what you've got in the in the 20th century are groups like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and what the United States Congress found in 1953 and 1954 through their investigation led by Norman Dodd, who was a chief researcher who was groomed at their schools with the Trivium at Andover, which is a private school, and at Yale. And when he worked at J.P. Morgan, he became a whistleblower and then worked for the United States Congress as a director of research. He finds out and discovers that in the minutes of the meetings from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, between 1908 and 1911, this group, which is allegedly there to empower our educational institutions, 
decided to find a formula to undermine the people of America, to undermine our educations, to dumb us down literally, and to use that to control us. And so in discovering that there's congressional reports dealing with this for the past 50 or 60 years, that this information has been out there for thousands of years, and that it successfully keeps getting taken away from people. And the result of that is that people lose their ability to navigate in their life and make informed decisions. I think that we need to just identify a couple places where people can apply and use the trivium daily. And how does the knowledge and experience of using it build up over time? It's interesting. I'll read a quote from John of Salisbury. He says, Wisdom without the power of expression is feeble and maimed. Speechless wisdom may sometimes increase one's personal satisfaction, but it rarely and only slightly contributes to the welfare of human society. Reason the guardian of knowledge, as well as of virtue, frequently conceives from speech and by the same means bears more abundant and richer fruit. Reason would remain utterly barren or at least would fail to yield a plenteous harvest if the faculty of speech did not bring to light its feeble conceptions and communicate the perceptions of the prudent exercise of the human mind. Indeed, it is in this delightful and fruitful copulation of reason and speech, which has given birth to so many outstanding cities, has made friends and allies of so many kingdoms, and has unified and knit together in bonds of love so many peoples. Whoever tries to, quote, thrust asunder what God has joined together for the common good should rightly be adjudged a public enemy. That's a powerful quote. I couldn't have put it better myself. Our ability to think is contingent on our ability to put thoughts into language. And if we are unable to do so for whatever reason, we will be intellectually crippled. If we cannot say it, we cannot think it. And we cannot let it come to that. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again for episode 115 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Alternative Alternative Media. <laughs> <laughs>